Welcome to the brand new Community Renewables podcast. My name is Rebecca and I will guide you through this podcast together with the wonderful Craig, an energy transition chronicler and podcast producer. So Craig, what's this podcast about? It's being made for LECO, an EU project in local community renewables. Germany is known for its grassroots renewables, and everyone else seems to want to have that. The EU's Renewable Energy Directive of 2018 even says we should have community renewables. Sounds great. But I assume there's some complication? Yes. Uh, community renewables is over in Germany. It basically doesn't exist in new projects. I'd like to understand why it died out, whether we should care, and if we do, what policy changes we need to foster community renewables. So that's my angle. What's yours? Why did you want to be the moderator of this podcast? Actually, I've tried to convince world leaders myself. I was the UN Youth Delegate on Sustainable Development, and I tried to give young people a voice at the negotiating table. Oh, well, here you have a voice. Yes. And also, you know, this topic I was focusing on in my studies. I'm currently writing my master thesis on public acceptance of for carbon tax. And from my time as a UN Youth Delegate, I promote the the sustainable development goals at international and national level. And I realized that we left one level out in the whole discussion, which is the local level, though I see it's actually the most important one. I see it's a key driver for sustainability transformation. Okay, well, that's perfect for this show. Exactly. And there's another thing which is perfect for the show. Germany's Renewable Energy Act, which is the law that made community energy boom, turned 20 this year. Happy birthday oh, to... Oh, please stop. You're scaring away our audience. <laughs> okay, sorry. Well, speaking of our audience, we will address policymakers and energy sector experts to learn from experience in Germany and other countries. But we also want to make this comprehensible for young people. And as a moderator, I will make sure to not have a super nerdy energy podcast, but to interrupt our energy experts And also you, our producer, Craig, whenever he gets lost in his energy jargon. Thanks. <laughs> so, Craig, tell us about yourself. You've been writing about the energy transition for how long? Um, about 20 years, uh, but I have also written a history of what happened even earlier in Germany. So I got to Freiburg, Germany uh, in 1992, and I lived there for basically a quarter of a century. And originally, I was studying linguistics. I wasn't even in the energy sector. And then in 1994, something funny happened. Uh, Freiburg's football team, SC Freiburg, uh, they entered the Premier League in Germany, and they needed to expand their stadium. And so when they were going to build stands on the south side of the stadium, there was a campaign to put photovoltaics on the Southern Tribune, as they called it. And, I mean, this was back in a, at a time when solar was something for NASA, for outer space. It was incredibly expensive. There was no business case. And the thing that fascinated me was th these were football fans, right? And so I began to think, you know, what is the potential if you get people, uh, you know, sports fans driving this thing, And they, they really, they were investing their money um, without a business case because they just wanted to do the right thing regardless of whether the price was right yet. 
And I would like to get back to that spirit where people don't need the right price before they do the right thing. Mm. On Twitter, you still have a tweet pinned to the top where you say something similar about Fridays for Future, that they are bringing values back into a debate that has long only talked about prices. Is that still pinned to the top? Um, I'll have to replace that with a tweet about this podcast. <laughs> so listeners, hurry over to Twitter to still read Craig's post about Fridays for Future. In case someone missed it, maybe you can tell us what you mean. Um, I don't remember exactly what I say in that blog post, but here's what I think about Fridays for Future today. There's three points. So as you said, the movement does not focus on finding the right price before we do the right thing. So the focus shifts towards values and away from money. The economic argument then becomes ethical. And I think the merely economic argument has always also been ethical, but it just doesn't want to admit that. Economists seem to talk about setting the right price almost as a magical way to avoid having to talk about ethics with the public. So if you set the right price, no one has to preach to anyone about what the right thing to do is. And I find this angle disingenuous because the only way to get people to accept higher prices is to convince them ethically that it's the right thing to do. It's almost like we seem to be trying to set prices in order to avoid having to talk about ethics, where in reality, we need to talk about ethics in order to get people to accept higher prices. Does that make sense? If that is the case, maybe ethics alone is sufficient and we don't even always need the right price. We'll have opportunities to delve into that reasoning in later episodes. But you said three things are important about Fridays for Future. What is the second point? Yes, another thing that Fridays for Future seems to show is that focusing on the negative can be effective. It's long been assumed that we somehow need to be positive and optimistic. We just keep saying we have 10 more years, even as time passes. For instance, do you know when someone said for the first time that we only have 10 years or a decade left to save the planet from global warming? I guess it was in the early 2000s. Actually, it was in 1989 when an official from the United Nations said that we had until 2000 to prevent climate change. Uh, I can put a link to that report from 1989, which is still online in the show notes, And that first time it was said may have also been the last time it was correct. To be clear, we cannot start in 10 years, but have to be finished in 10 years. So it's already too late to prevent climate change? The climate is already changing. What I'm saying is that in the years since then, emissions have risen, not dropped. And we have run out of time for the easy things. All of the measures proposed for 2030 and thereafter have become fairly drastic. But my main point is that we stick to this narrative that we have to be positive and optimistic because people might otherwise give up hope and not do anything. And I'm saying that there's really no reason to assume this. There are mixed findings in the social science literature. And Fridays for Future seems to show that focusing on the worst outcomes does indeed motivate some people. So maybe we need to communicate different things for different audiences. And I personally like to emphasize that any progress is welcome. 
1.5 degrees of warming is better than 2.0 degrees. But 2.2 degrees is also better than 2.5 degrees, period. Right, right. And pre-corona, uh, we were probably headed for more than 3 degrees. So even 2.5 degrees would be an improvement. And by the way, do you know when 2.0 degrees was first formulated as a goal? No, but I suppose you're going to tell us, Mr. Energy Transition Chronicler. My pleasure. And again, we can put a link in the show notes. So it was in 1975. An economist named William Nordhaus, who has since become a leading figure in the climate debate, postulated the notion that limiting warming to 2.0 degrees might suffice. But he was just guessing. The number wasn't based on a specific calculation of, say, tipping points. Maybe we should explain what climate scientists mean by tipping points. So we don't just warm from 1.1 degrees, where we are now, to 1.5 degrees, 2.0 degrees, and so on, on, as a straight line. There will be tipping points where faster change is baked in. We don't know exactly when what will happen, but let's say that at 1.6 degrees of warming, the tundra starts to thaw and release methane, or there's massive glacial melting in Greenland. Then a vicious cycle begins, positive feedback. So to stick with this example, global warming of 1.9 degrees might be baked in when we reach 1.6 degrees. That's why we have to slow warming down quickly. And recently, the scientific consensus has centered on 1.5 degrees as the temperature to shoot for, not 2.0 degrees. So our understanding is improving. But still, these are just estimates. We are working with some politically motivated simplifications for the targets and with possibly not well-founded assumptions about what motivates people to act, such as this, we have to be optimistic. So Fridays for Future might get some people more motivated to engage in climate action. We are going to talk a lot about acceptance in this podcast, about what motivates citizens to become involved in community energy projects, period. What are your thoughts on that? I think talking about acceptance turns Germany's energy transition on its head, historically speaking. As we're going to see in some of these episodes, it was citizens and communities who got top German politicians to accept the transition, not the other way around. And more importantly, I think we need to work towards identification and not just acceptance. And what do you mean by that? People want to have meaning in their lives, a sense of purpose. Perhaps I should explain this with a poem. Oh, be my guest. All right, so this is from Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. Tiger got to hunt. Bird got to fly. Man got to sit and wonder why, why, why. Tiger got to sleep. Bird got to land. Man got to tell himself he understand. Nice. What accent was that? Uh, that was my approximation of a New Orleans accent. It was where I was born. So you grew up sounding like that? Uh, no, I grew up in Mississippi, which has a much different accent. Do we get to hear that sometime in the podcast? We can do a whole episode in it if you want. <laughs> okay, I think that's enough. So back to the poem. It basically tells us that humans are condemned to look for meaning in their lives. And therefore, we need to get people to see meaning for themselves in the energy transition. That's what I mean by people need to identify with it. 
So just like Catholics, and I was raised Catholic, by the way, Catholics say, I don't eat meat on Fridays. And along similar lines, we need people to start saying, I don't emit carbon because I am whatever they see themselves as, Catholic, Muslim, German, French, European, whatever. And instead, we're talking about trying to find the right price signals because we live in an irreligious time and we lack forums where we can meet and talk about ethics. And this lack of a forum for ethics has led us to think of people as primarily motivated by money, which is probably the biggest mistake my generation made. What do you mean by that? Well, take Bill Clinton's campaign slogan when he first ran for president in 1992. It's the economy, stupid. Well, it turns out, as we now know from lots of social science literature, that people simply are often willing to vote against their personal economic interests for the sake of a perceived greater cause. Which is why a lot of people are increasingly voting for populist politicians. Their solutions might be questionable, but at least they destroy the system that has failed to save their communities. But we need strong communities because this is where citizens engage, in politics and with renewables. Yes. And there's a great quote from Tim Carney, who wrote a book called Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. And he recently said on a podcast, when trying to explain why so many Americans voted for Trump, and this is a quote... It's not necessarily about money, it's about civic togetherness. So people in crumbling communities, they lose faith in the political system and they want revolution. Any change is worth trying, for example, voting for Trump, though it may not be to their financial benefit. But not necessarily about money, as Tim Carney says, also means partly about money, right? Um, well, let me try to explain it this way. I mean, yes is the short answer. Um, but in general, money is the solution when a lack of money is the problem. But if the problem is loneliness, if the problem is a lack of social cohesion or mistrust, then throwing money at the problem might not help. In fact, it could come across the wrong way. You will have to explain that. Uh, let's play a little game. So pretend that you and me are friends. <laughs> okay, where's this going? <laughs> uh, bear with me, it won't hurt. Um, so you and me are friends, and I call you up and say, uh, listen, Rebecca, I'm moving on the weekend, and I could use some help. So could you come over on Saturday and help me carry stuff, and I'll pay you 10 euros an hour. Or I tell you, come over on Saturday and help, And there will be free drinks and all the pizza you can eat when we're finished. So how do you feel about each of these offers? So do I have to pick one of these? Um, no, I'm only going to propose the one or the other option. So what I'm asking you is, how would you feel about each option without knowing about the other one? If I'm your friend, I would feel very uncomfortable taking money for helping you. Okay, so you'd prefer the pizza? I would prefer quality time with my friends. Exactly, quality yeah. time with my friends, yeah. And, and that's the problem with the way we are handling climate change mitigation and the energy transition. So wind farm developers come to your community where people already have relations, and they propose this wind farm project 
which you are then to accept. And to help you accept it, they pay money. So tax revenue for city hall, rent to landowners, compensation for people within whatever distance from the wind farm, etc. And all this puts communication on the wrong wavelength for people living in communities with each other. Neighbors don't speak to each other that way. Like, you don't tell your neighbors, I'll give you 10 euros if you come help me out. Um, We've really forgotten that the economy exists inside society. Our best leaders now act as though society were within the economy or within the market and not the other way around. Uh, Slow down. You're losing me now. All right. Um, So the book everyone should read here is Carl Polanyi's or Polanyi's. I think that's how you pronounce it. We will put that in the show notes anyway. Okay. And the book is called The Great Transformation, and it's from 1944. And it's kind of interesting because we're talking about an energy transition, and and he writes this book about the Great Transformation. Uh, The transformation he talks about is a switch from society... uh, let me, let me rephrase that from the market being inside society, and we've transformed that the other way around. So now society is within the market. And he basically argues that no society before ours, so in his time around the 1940s, put society within the market. So everyone before like the 1920s would have seen markets as something within their society and within their communities. And no historians or ethnographers have ever found a culture where this was the other way around. And so we're living in this unprecedented era that evolution didn't build us for. We are highly social beings whose happiness and even survival depends on social interaction. But when we talk about solutions, we want to throw money at everything. So far, this has actually been a pretty philosophical introduction into the topic of renewable energy communities. But the other podcasts are going to be different, and we will not only discuss on our own. We are going to interview loads of people, well, mostly in Germany, but we will also have people from Ireland, Belgium, Denmark, the Netherlands. Mm, Did I forget any country? Canada. Oh, of course. And we are not just going to talk with the experts who will share their top-down analysis. We will also talk with citizens from community renewable projects to give their perspective a place. So, Craig, we will listen to people who will put solar on their roof or join together to set up windmill, right? Exactly. But the backdrop is, of course, the EU's Renewable Energy Directive of 2018. Red 2 which you mispronounced as R-E-D-2 in one of the segments. I get to keep learning too. <laughs> okay, so RED2 calls for EU member states to support community renewable energy projects. Germany, which is actually our focus in our podcast, is known for its community renewables. But community renewables is practically dead in new projects. Right at a time when the EU is calling for it, And no one in Germany with the power to change things seems to care. Hmm. So one goal of this podcast is to work out the benefits of community renewables and answer the question whether we should care. But isn't Germany required to ratify Red 2 one way or the other? Yes, but Berlin hasn't done it yet. And one of my questions for our guests is whether Red 2 is toothless. 
does it symbolically call for community renewables without being able to enforce implementation? And what is your view? How should member states implement RED2 to support community renewables? Well, that's exactly what we're trying to figure out. So I have asked a wide range of people in a handful of EU countries, the ones you mentioned, and some 30 people in total, what they think needs to be done. Wow, that's a wealth of expertise. I think our listeners will become community renewable experts in the end. And we too do our best to synthesize their ideas and sum it all up in the final episode. And dear listener, don't let us discuss alone. Chime into the discussion by contacting us on Twitter. You can find me at Rebecca L. Freitag. Okay, and folks, wait a minute. My goal for this podcast is to get Rebecca to change her Twitter handle from Rebecca L. Freitag. You ready for this? Yeah? <laughs> to Freitag for future. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, I'm not sure. Well, we'll see about that. So, Craig is PP Chef. And you can follow the hashtag EEG podcast. Yes, and by the way, EEG stands for the wonderful German word Erneuerbare Energiegesetz, EEG, and that means Renewable Energy Act. And it's what got community renewables going in Germany to begin with, or more specifically, the feed-in tariffs in it. And we'll get into what feed-in tariffs or FITs are in later episodes. Essentially, you want to know how RED2 can be ratified for community renewables so that it actually works. Exactly. And I kind of want to know whether anyone really cares. I mean, we're focusing on getting renewables at the lowest price, and we forget one of the main principles on which the German energy transition started. Values? Yes, and that ownership matters. How so? Uh, well, it, it goes back to the very beginning. Um, in 1985, the second book with Energiewende in the title... That's what Germany calls its energy transition. Right. Uh, and the term had been used first in an, a book from 1980, so Energiewende from 1980. And that book drew up a scenario for roughly half renewables. We couldn't even imagine 100% renewables back then. But the 1985 book took a different stance, investigating why so little had happened in the five years since the first book. And what did they find? Basically, that there would be winners and losers in the transition, and that the incumbent energy providers would be among the losers, and so they would block the transition. The solution they proposed was to break up big energy firms in order to weaken their market influence. And one of the subheadings in the book was, one power plant, one firm. Wow, that sounds pretty radical. And no one is talking about that today. Who wrote this book? It was a group of independent researchers who went on to take over the mainstream at institutes like Wuppertal and Ökoinstitut. Do you think breaking up big energy firms would still be useful? I mean, we have had liberalization and lots of other things since. I'd like to focus not so much on the exact wording, but on the principle. It's also found in Germany's basic law, or the Grundgesetz. So essentially the German constitution. Right. And the term is Eigentum verpflichtet, which you could translate as with ownership comes responsibility. It's often spoken of today in terms of landlords. So you rent property, but you have an obligation, a responsibility towards your tenants because you're renting something that's not frivolous, 
like iPads or something we can live without, but it's a good that people have a right to housing. So landlords are partially responsible for making housing affordable. But how does this tie into the energy transition? Well, think of municipal utilities, the companies that often provide water and electricity services in many cities. There has been an effort for citizens to buy back their municipals from the companies that are often multinational stock corporations. And these companies hold a concession for 20 years or so. And when these concessions run out, citizens try to take ownership back instead of renewing the concession. And the argument against that is, why do you citizens think you can provide better and cheaper services than these professional firms? And the answer is, we don't. We will hire the same people, pay them the same, except maybe for top management, but we will be able to decide what happens with the profits. They will be reinvested here in the community. And we will be able to co-decide what infrastructure gets built. So maybe in the end, it does get more expensive, but that's because citizens decided they were willing to pay more, for instance, to switch their coal-fired district heat system over to natural gas with increasing shares of renewable heat. I'm wondering, can't citizens get their multinational energy company to do that? Maybe with a referendum? Maybe, uh, but it's easier if you run the company outright. And we see this dilemma everywhere. Economists investigate options and tell us that they found the one that's the most economically efficient. And that's great, it's useful information, but it's not the last word. We don't have to automatically do what's cheapest. And too often, we talk about it like finding the cheapest solution is the last word. Like society exists within the market, so the market determines what we do. Yeah, that's the point you were making before. Economy used to exist in the market, and today it's the other way around. And in reality, when economists tell us what the cheapest option is, it's the beginning of the conversation, not the end. So we may choose to do something more expensive because of our values. Just as we limit child labor and slavery, even though they might bring prices down, to take an extreme example. Yeah, it's not all about the money. And keep in mind that efficiency often comes at the expense of quality of life. What do you mean by that? Well, everyone likes to take vacation because that's when you can waste time. You don't have to be efficient. Efficiency in healthcare often means nurses and doctors spend less time with patients. And we have set up our global trading systems to be efficient, and now we also see that it hurts resilience. Communities, even countries, cannot take care of themselves in a crisis like this pandemic if they rely on imports of food and medical equipment once those shipments break down. So we don't always have to do what's most efficient. We can choose levels of life quality and resilience as well. And now let me try to translate this back to energy. Citizens often complain when it comes to infrastructure projects, including those in the energy transition. This company is not from here, we don't trust them, they are going to profit off of us, and we have no say in what happens with the profits. Exactly. And you use the word trust. That's what this is all about. I'm not saying that corporations are bad by definition or that community groups are good by definition. There's a reason why the EU wants competition and is a bit, shall we say, unfriendly to citizen buybacks. Uh, wait a minute. Brussels doesn't support citizen buybacks? Uh, not really. 
Oh, well, I didn't expect that. Well, but they have reasons, good reasons. Um, really, it boils down to nepotism. If you start allowing communities to block all outsiders, you end up with local corruption. Mm. Yeah, we have to find some middle ground. Uh, something between preventing corruption and still addressing the reason why communities want more control. Exactly. Okay, well, let's see if we find an answer in this podcast. Um, Craig, I have one final question for you. You asked me to be the moderator of this podcast a few months ago, before Corona had shut things down. And now we can still luckily record this podcast with enough distance. Did the pandemic change the production process for you? Absolutely. So I originally planned to visit all these people that we've now recorded over Skype, and that would have improved the overall sound quality. But recording in the field would also have allowed me to have background noise as a topic at the end of the podcast. So according to our plan in the last episode, you would have talked about background noise. What would you have said? Yeah, ambient noise. So one of the complaints against wind farms is that they're too loud. And I would have recorded everyone outside. So the big city experts in parks, um, community wind farm operators under their turbines. And I even wanted to walk around on top of the football stadium in Freiburg when interviewing someone about that solar array. And we would have seen that we are surrounded by noise, mainly from cars, not wind turbines. And none of that happened. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. And in the end, I would have lined up some snippets and compared the background noise levels. I did this in a video I made in 2013. I had the guy who spearheaded a community wind project stand directly under one of his turbines. But the video doesn't show any turbines until the end, when the grand reveal shows that the whole conversation took place under a giant running machine, and it's hard to hear. Here's an outtake of that moment. The conversation is in German, but pay attention to the background noise level. Das ist ja super, aber wieso haben Sie uns hier in den Wald gebeten? Freiburg hat nicht nur einen wunderschönen Wald, sondern auch wunderschöne Windturbinen. Und ich wollte auch zeigen, dass man sich unter den Windturbinen sehr gut unterhalten kann. So the guy says, I ask you to hold this interview with me under my turbine so you can hear for yourself how easy it is to talk underneath them. And who's this young lady? That's my daughter. She was 13 at the time. Do, so do you always have younger women partnering in your projects? Call it a benefit of gender balance. Okay, coming back to the video. Well, to be honest, I think I could hear that turbine. A little bit. I mean, they're not silent. You can hike up to that wind farm in the Black Forest, and whenever I did, it started to sound like a jet airplane was flying overhead once you got within, let's say, 500 meters. Uh, but the noise level right under the wind farm, so within it, is probably below 50 decibels, which is maybe as loud as your laptop's fan. People get annoyed by loud laptops. Absolutely. Loudness is a criterion for me when buying a laptop. That's because we use them in quiet spaces like offices. The ambient noise level that many of us put up with is several times higher wherever cars go by, which is pretty much any street and lots of busy rural thoroughfares. But I had an experience last summer that taught me a lot about noise perception. So can I tell you a quick story? Go for it. So it's a hot summer night, and I have the window open to get some cool air in. 
And the lady two stories up has hung her clothes up to dry, apparently without spin drying them well beforehand. And so water drops are falling from her balcony onto my terrace next to my bedroom. It's not loud, just imagine drops falling two stories onto stone. But it kept me awake because my brain couldn't stop anticipating the next drop. <laughs> That sounds like a method of torture. Yeah, I hardly slept. So the next day, I asked the lady upstairs not to hang her clothes up on the balcony again. And now I think her son hates me. <laughs> Serves you right. And for wind farms, this means that loudness is not the real issue. It's simply a new noise that people are not used to. Yeah. And the prehistory also matters. So the next time the tenants in my building have to make a collective decision about something, that lady's son, who now hates me... And rightly so. Exactly. Um, he might just oppose my new idea to get back at me. So if you proposed a wind turbine... Or solar panels on the roof, I might face opposition just because my neighbors think I'm a jerk. I put in a good word for you. Thanks. In return for free pizza and beer. Anytime. Good. So that's all the evidence about ambient noise we get because Corona prevented you from recording in the field. Yep. And there was one other place I really wanted to visit and couldn't. It's Europe's largest suspended footbridge, the Gaiolai Bridge. Oh, I've been there. No way. Yes way. I'm so jealous. So I was worried that my knees might be too shaky to record the interview there on the bridge. And How was it for you? Were you scared? Well, honestly, yes. I felt a bit like in, in some part of adventure. Uh, actually, I used to walk a similar bridge in Taiwan when they told me that this bridge has crashed with a tractor on it just before. But, uh, well, the bridge in Germany, I think it was about 100 meters high. It was swinging and shaky, but... I trust German engineers. Yeah, so you see how trust is important. Um, well, this footbridge uh, is also important because it would not have been possible without revenue from a nearby wind farm. Yeah, I remember that I could see some of the turbines from the bridge. But we still have the interview with a guy in a later episode, just by a Skype and not on the bridge. And, I mean, your knees would have been too shaky anyway, so same difference. Probably. And Corona also changed the conversations a bit, even via Skype. I started off asking people how they were doing. We won't include those segments in the show, but the answers varied. Uh, most people were fine, some people were stressed out, and one person, as of this taping, I still haven't recorded because uh, they have COVID-19. Okay, Craig, we have reached the end of our opening episode, and we will see in the coming episodes that you would like to end each interview by giving your interviewees the last word. So today I give you this question, is there anything you would like to add that I haven't asked? Actually, yes. We said there were three important things about Fridays for Future, but we only talked about two. The stage is all yours. The main slogan of Fridays for Future is, listen to the scientists. But it's important to understand that the scientists agree on the problem, but not on the solution. So when we just listen to the scientists, we only address the climate deniers. We're not working on solutions. Right. There's no agreement on geoengineering and negative emissions, which is like technology that sucks carbon out of the air. And there's no agreement on nuclear either. There's this really brief mention in a recent IPCC report about nuclear could be part of the solution, 
But then there's this fierce debate behind closed doors about how that passage came about and why it doesn't read nuclear must make up a third of our power supply or whatever. There's nothing specific. And there's one other thing. When climate scientists talk about solutions, so geoengineering, nuclear, renewables, whatever, this is not necessarily their area of scientific expertise. They do climate so when they talk about solar and wind, they're speaking as lay people. They don't know more than we do. But isn't there a scientific approach to solving solutions? I suppose science is about being testable. So hypotheses have to be disprovable. But how can we run multiple global experiments about the climate when we only have one planet? Then we use models. Right. And some modelers in the U.S. say 80% nuclear looks best. Others say 100% renewables. So there's no scientific agreement on these solutions. So listening to who, if not the scientists? The only way to resolve this is to ask people what solutions they prefer. The economists can line things up in terms of cost, and then we discuss. And this is what we mean when we talk about democratizing the energy sector. So we need a forum for regular community debates because communities are where people engage. And we don't have that. National citizen assemblies, like the one in Ireland, are a good place to start. But we could break that down to lower levels as well, even to communities. Or in a podcast. <laughs> yes, and then people might get involved in shaping the transition by making their immediate communities better. People would take ownership. Not just financially, but they would identify with the project. That's the way all this started, by the way. The German Energiewende began in the 70s before public awareness about climate change as an attempt to make decision makers more accountable to local people in energy infrastructure decisions. The German energy transition has made German democracy more open. And so we have to ask people what their values are, and then we start shortlisting solutions. The energy transition is not a technical task we can leave up to technocrats. The experts themselves disagree, so they can't do it alone. We need a consensus and popular buy-in. And that's what we aim to explore in this podcast. So I hope you'll join us on this journey. Feel invited to join the discussion also on Twitter. You have been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency. The AEE. For the local community renewables projects, LICO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014-2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! <laughs> and our producer is energy transition chronicler Craig Morris, advisor at the IE. The music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan. Tricolor! Please check out their music and remember the singing from the balconies during the quarantines. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this corona business is over. Speaking of art... Yes? In an upcoming episode, we have a law professor, Dr. Lawrence Yaras, 
and he's got a bunch of jokes on his website. Since when are jokes art? Well, hear me out for a second. So let me tell you one of these jokes. You're not gonna believe it. I'm all ears. So do I get to say a hole on this podcast? A hole? You know the、uh, thing you're sitting on now? <laughs> Seriously?、Mm, okay. I mean, you can say a hole, but not the long version. This is still a family-friendly podcast, and this joke better be good. Okay. So. Two cops and a police dog are standing outside a bar, and a guy comes out, lifts up the dog's tail, and looks at his behind. Okay. Then a second guy comes out and does the same, and then a third, and when the fourth guy comes out, the cop stops him and asks, "What's going on here?" And the guy answers, "The bartender told us you've got to see this to believe it. There's a dog outside with two a holes." Oh my God, and that's on a law professor's website. Absolutely, and he'll be on one of our future episodes. Does he have to be? You'll love him. Well, we see about that. Drop us a comment on Twitter, where I am at Rebecca L Freitag, and I am PP Chef, and let us know what you think about this episode and about that really、uh, tasteless joke. Come on, you thought it was funny. I can't believe I have you as a producer. Well, see you next week, everyone. Bye bye. Bye.